to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, Jordana Michelle, lesbian love coach and matchmaker extraordinaire. And if you're interested in finding your soulmate so you can be best friends who learn and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and have amazing sex together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with valuable free resources like my guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life, a class on the number one thing you can do to end your loneliness if you're single, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a guide to the five biggest mistakes most women make when coming out, and since I'm such a great matchmaker and I might already be friends with the woman of your dreams, I also offer everyone a free survey you can fill out so that I can keep you in mind as I meet amazing women just like you through the work that I'm doing in our community. All of that is free at womenwantingwomen.com. But before we go any further, I have a question. Do you think it's hot when you meet a woman and you can tell she's super desperate to meet someone or she's super self-critical or anxious or negative about things? Probably not. Those qualities are huge turnoffs for most of us. And we can totally sense those things in other women because we women are intuitive. And we can tell when people around us are insecure or desperate or afraid or anxious See, dating women is all about being exposed because other women can sense us in ways that men generally can't. Look, we all have inner critics. We're all sometimes, you know, we all sometimes feel shame and overwhelming emotions. That's normal. But if we want to have more success attracting women, then we need to find a balance or a way of managing and coping with our emotions. And this is not by dimming our light or squashing the full range of our expression. It's actually the opposite. It's about learning to own it and becoming stronger and more powerful than the emotions themselves. It's so sexy when a woman can be both wild and in control at the same time, like standing in her power and still feeling the full range of her emotions. A woman capable of owning her emotions like that is a force to be reckoned with. And all of us can learn tools to do this better. There are tools and practices that anyone can use to strengthen your capacity to cope with your emotions and handle yourself in a way that is sexier and more attractive to other women. And so that's why I invited Sharon Salzberg onto my podcast. This woman is totally epic. I'm so agreed. I'm so excited that she agreed to come on my podcast. She's a friend of mine, but it's really cool that she made time for this interview. Um, she is a world-renowned Buddhist meditation teacher who I knew would be the perfect person to ask about mind tricks for being stronger and more powerful in the face of our emotions. And practicing the tools that she talks about in this episode will make you far more attractive when meeting and dating women. Sharon Salzberg is historically important because she is someone who played a big hand in the popularization of mindfulness and meditation practices in mainstream culture. She's one of the early pioneers who traveled to India all the way back in 1971 to learn meditation, and she returned to teach it across the West. During those early days in India, she studied with some of the towering figures teaching Eastern spirituality, like Ram Das, Daniel Goleman, Jack Kornfeld, Joseph Goldstein, and Mark Epstein, and Sharon's a part of this group. They, this is the group that is largely responsible for the widespread popularity of mindfulness and meditation and Eastern spirituality in our culture. 
So she's totally epic and also wise and warm and funny. And in this episode of Women Wanting Women, Sharon Salzberg shares with us powerful strategies for feeling more whole and for managing fear and anger and habitual self-criticism so you can project more confidence when you're dating and not cling with neediness to the women you meet. So without further introduction, I hope you enjoy this interview with the amazing Sharon Salzberg. Hi, Sharon. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast and for being with me today. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's always so much fun getting to talk to you. Um, and I'm really excited for my listeners to be able to learn from you because uh, you have so much practical wisdom you can share. And, and a lot of the listeners on this podcast, they're um, either coming out of the closet or getting over a breakup or they're single or lonely, you know, dealing with some hard stuff in their lives. Um, and the wisdom you teach, the tools that you teach, they're so practical and um, they're so helpful for dealing with painful situations and challenges in life. So um, that's what I'm really excited for you to be able to share with everybody. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And, you know, I mean, somebody going through a hard time really needs to know they're not alone, you know, because uh, there's so much loneliness, uh, maybe especially these days. And um, there's, there's lots of stuff to face. Yeah, and that's um, what actually led you, I believe, to teach what you teach now because your childhood was so filled with immense grief and confusion, mm -hmm. um, and, and you um, went to learn meditation as a way to overcome all of that um, and, and study Buddhism too, uh -huh. which is actually brings me to something I just want to clarify before we go any further that I think you can speak to, because some people um, who haven't studied Buddhism might consider it a religion the way that um, many other religions exist where you b believe mm -hmm. in something. Um, so w why, what do you think of in terms of that? Would you think of Buddhism as a religion or do you think of it as um, more like a practical? Yeah. What do you think about this? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't really think of it as a religion and in some ways I never have. I, I, um, and of course it could exist that way, you know, in a very uh, traditional Buddhist country. But, um, you know, I first heard about Buddhism really when I was in college I took an Asian philosophy course and um, Buddhism was in there. And honestly, looking back, you know, it does seem like happenstance. I took that course and I just chose it because it was convenient or something. And it completely changed my life. And the Buddha himself is always talked about as having been a human being. He wasn't like a supernatural being. And he had some very big questions about life and happiness and suffering and you know, what does it mean to have this human body and to be born an infant and to be so subject to the actions of others, so vulnerable, and then to grow up and to get old and to get sick and to die, whether we want that or not? And is there a kind of happiness that isn't going to shatter as the body does its thing? And, you know, what does it mean to have an ordinary human mind where it's just a cascade of changing emotions? Like maybe we wake up and we're frightened, and then we're full of joy, and then we're full of sorrow, and then, we're, you know, it's just like constantly changing, and without our being able to kind of say, well, I've decided, you know, I've grieved long enough, or I'll never be afraid again, it's not like that. And here, too, the question was, is there a way to have happiness, a very deep happiness, even as the mind on that level is doing its thing? And it said whatever the Buddha discovered, he discovered through the power of his own awareness, and so can we about whatever our own questions are about life. And so um, it's not really about believing him or following anyone else. He offered a methodology or a series of methods 
which are like experiments if you want to try, you know, um, especially these days, you know, where uh, the the practices when I went to India in 1970 were kind of embedded in uh, just the environment. I was in India. Um, the Buddha was quoted all the time. Um, you know, but although the very first night of my first retreat, which was in January 1971, the teacher who was S.N. Goenka said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. You know, so I've always felt that he said this is not about becoming a Buddhist. It's not about rejecting anything else. It's about really enhancing your own power of awareness. Um, you know, and they, these days, you know, where uh, the methodologies have all been translated into uh, health science and neuroscience and, you know, genetic expression. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways these practices are framed in terms of their effect in our lives. And, and that's the whole point is having a different life. I love that. Um, and yeah, speaking of the methodolo methodologies being translated into science, I heard a quote recently saying that everything that psychoanalysis or psychology gets right has its origins in, in mindfulness and Buddhism. So mm -hmm. that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, very, very interesting. So, um, you know, you mentioned um, our minds and the constant changing of our minds. And I want to uh, throw in another quote of yours that I, I wrote down once. You said, we confuse who we are. We think we're mm -hmm. our bodies, we think we're our thoughts, we think we're our personal histories, we think that's who I am. Um, and I remember, you know, there's this idea of you are not your mind. I remember the first time mm -hmm. I learned it, it pretty much flipped my world upside down. I find mm -hmm. it liberating, but also in some ways terrifying. So what, is, what does that mean, you are not your mind? What is self-identification with the mind? Well, you know, we look at these changing states and uh, we realize, you know, maybe I do identify with that. Like, I'm so angry and I always will be. Or I'm such an angry person. And that's different than I'm feeling anger right now, you know. So we have functions of the mind or, or factors of the mind like awareness and perception. And we have this constantly changing array of experiences, emotion, thought, ideation, imagery. Um, and because they're always changing, it doesn't mean they're irrelevant or or they're not worth looking at, but so much of them are, are are simply conditioning, you know, that voice that comes up that says you can't do anything right or, you know, that's, well, first of all, it's someone else's voice, which has now gotten implanted in our heads. Um, and it, too, is is something that we can look at, realize what it is, let go of and and not be driven into action because of. And and just to back up, you know, because this idea of you are not your mind, it starts with, before we even go to that, um, can you just, um, why do we think that we are our minds? Because I know there was a time when I didn't know that I wasn't. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of identification. And the problem with identification is that it implies control. I mean, if, it was, if I was my mind, shouldn't I be able to stop grieving or, you know, not feel embarrassed because I, you know, mispronounced something or you know, I should be able to control it. And of course, the truth is we can't control it. And and so much of the suffering we experience is, is feeling like we should. Like, um, I'm here right now in Barry, Massachusetts, where the Insight Meditation Society is, which we I co-founded in uh, 1976. So it's been around for a long time. And I'm actually working in the room. Uh, that was my original room here when we first moved into the building. And so it's bringing up a lot of memories for me, including being on retreat there myself and, and meditating there. And 
I remember I was once sitting there and uh, one of our teachers, this man named Manindra from India, had come over to visit. And he was leading the course. And I don't know, maybe I've been meditating for six or seven years at that point, And I was very disgruntled because I don't even remember what I was experiencing, but I didn't like it. You know, some emotional state I thought shouldn't be there anymore because I should have like cleansed it away long before. And yet there it was. And I'm sure I didn't say that actually to Manindra, but he could sense from my tone of voice. That's what I was feeling. And he said to me, why um, are you blaming yourself for this thought which has come up in your mind? Did you invite it? Like, did you say at you know, one thirty, I'd like to be filled with self-hatred, please? No. These things arise when all these conditions come together to make them arise. And certainly we work on the conditions so that, you know, maybe that which besets us doesn't have to come so often or um, so intensely. But the ultimate power we have is not in trying to make it go away, but in relating differently to, to it, you know, not taking it to heart, having some space, realizing a thought is just a thought. Do we want to take it seriously or not? That's up to us. You know, we have that power to, um, you know, take on the story and enhance it and grow with it or say, you know what, that is an old story and it's it's happening, but it's so untrue at this point. I'm going to work to let go of this. Right. And before we have that reframe, that idea that we can hear our thoughts and relate differently to them, we think to ourselves, if I'm thinking something, it must be true or it must be what I believe mm-hmm. or there must be something valid about it. Um, and, and actually we think that, that the, the thought, the voice in our heads that is talking is who we are almost, right? Because yeah, that's how that's we grew right. up. But, um, right. but this is a whole new reframe where not only... Um, do we start to look at our thoughts, but ask, can we relate differently and say, okay, there's a thought, but it's just a thought. And I don't mm-hmm. actually even have to take it seriously to begin with. Mm-hmm. That's right. I love that. Um, and, you know, you were talking about the voice in our head that, you know, kind of says mean things to ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. There's a story you tell that I love, you know, because we do have these fearful minds that cause us anxiety, obsessive thinking, like anguish, you know. Um, mm-hmm. but one of my favorite of your stories is when you talk about the Charlie Brown, the peanuts cartoon. Oh yes. Yeah. 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 Can you tell about yeah. that? Can we, can you talk about that? Sure. So, um, we talk about if you have a persistent negative voice in your head, like the inner critic, not one that is sort of onward leading, you know, that's like useful feedback if difficult to look at, but really that nagging voice, that's just demeaning, you know, and, and putting yourself down. Uh, the suggestion is, See if you can give that voice a name. Maybe give it a wardrobe. Um, give it a persona because everything is going to depend on how we relate to it. So I go on to say, always with apologies to the Lucys of the world, I named my inner critic Lucy because I had once seen this cartoon. I had moved into this house that a friend of ours had rented so several of us could do a retreat there. So I moved into the bedroom that was set aside for me and there was a cartoon on the desk from the Peanuts comic strip. And in the first frame of the cartoon, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown. And she says, you know what your problem is, Charlie Brown? The problem with you is that you're you. And then poor Charlie Brown says, well, what in the world can I do about that? And then Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. And somehow, whenever I was walking by that desk, my eye would fall right on that line. The problem with you is that you're you. And that Lucy voice had been so strong, so dominant in my earlier life. And 
I realized through meditation, I had some tools to relate differently. So, uh, and actually something happened very soon after I saw the cartoon where this like great thing happened for me. And my very first thought was, it's never going to happen again. And I responded to that with, hi, Lucy. That was followed by, chill out, Lucy. Just chill out. Now that's different than, you're right, Lucy. You're always right. I'm totally worthless. And it's also different than, oh my God, I've been practicing all these years. I've been in therapy forever. And why is Lucy still here? And I'm such a failure. It's like, hi, Lucy. Chill, Lucy. And um, there are some practices which would say, invite Lucy to dinner. Don't give her the run of the house because that's dangerous, but keep an eye on her. But you don't have to be so ashamed. You don't have to be so freaked out. You don't have to be so upset about those Lucy voices because in a way your awareness is stronger than they are. You can be a little cordial. You can be a little tender uh, and very mindful. So I said that in front of a group once and they didn't, someone in there didn't like it. And so I said, well, how about inviting Lucy in for a cup of tea? And they said, how about a cup of tea to go? I said, okay, if that's the extent to which you feel comfortable, that's the extent to which you feel comfortable. But it's really about recognizing, oh, look at this. Even here, I can be cultivating balance. I can be present in a different way. I can be kind. Um, What I think what really struck me is um, what you said is my awareness is stronger than those voices. Mm -hmm. Um, So what do you really mean by that? Well, I think a lot of the add-ons, you know, that the ways we freak out, um, we get frightened of that Lucy voice, for example, or, or we are so ashamed or so embarrassed, um, is because we we feel defeated with the arisal of that voice or the arrival of that voice as though it were a visitor. And what we don't realize is that we can cope. This is workable, you know, that we have capacity to be present and awareness itself has a kind of spaciousness to it. We're not like sucked into something, you know, and overwhelmed by it. And we're also not like beating at it, you know, fighting it, pushing it away. We're, we have a kind of balance in awareness inherently uh, when we're not upset about something, you know. And so we come back to that balance and it gives us a very spacious relationship. Like I used to um, define mindfulness uh, based on this article I read in the New York Times many years ago. It was a very early time of mindfulness entering school systems and and being taught to kids. And so this was an early pilot program uh, in uh, Oakland, California, fourth grade classroom. And um, the article in the Times altogether was great. And I especially liked two quotations. One was one of the researchers who said, all day long we tell kids to pay attention, but we never teach them how. Hmm. And then they asked one of the kids who's like nine or 10 years old, right? He's in fourth grade. So they said to him, what is mindfulness? What is mindfulness? And he said, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's what mindfulness means. And I thought that is a great definition of mindfulness. Because what does it imply? It implies you're aware that you're feeling anger when you're starting to feel anger, not after it's gotten overwhelming not after you've pressed send on that email, not after you've hit someone in the mouth verbally or or literally, right? As it's just beginning, you're so in touch with yourself, you can feel that first arising of the anger. And it also implies a certain balanced relationship to the anger because 
if we just get sucked into it, you know, and defined by it, we'll probably hit a lot of people in the mouth. And if we hate it and fear it, and we get more and more uptight about it and more and more repressed, we'll just explode someday. It's just not going to work. And so we talk about mindfulness as that place in the middle where we're neither sucked in nor are we pushing it away. And in that, there is space. And in that space, we can consider, you know, hit someone in the mouth last week. Didn't work out that well. Maybe I'll try this instead. We have options. We have choice. And we have creativity in that space. So going back to this voice of Lucy or whatever um, voice, it may be whether it's our anger or our self-criticism or our fear, um, when you say that our awareness is stronger than those voices in our minds, yeah. the mm-hmm. idea of mindfulness is it's a way to cope because you're talking about creating a space where instead of hating it and fearing it and because then hating it, you're creating more hate because it might be your hate and That's then right. you're hating your hate. So whatever might already exist in your mind, you're then creating more negativity around that original negativity. Am I? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and so um, mindfulness, I guess, and I've actually heard it spoken about this way where it's a way of looking at our fears and worries right in the eye, um, mm-hmm. not as a way to like to solve the problem. But as a, as a totally different, like a way of, like, what do they say? An undoing of old ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. That's nice. Yeah. So why would we want to completely undo our old way? What's the benefit of uh, that? I don't think we'll completely undo our old way, but. Or what's the benefit of trying? Well, the benefit is choice, you know. It's like if, if we're kind of on automatic pilot and as soon as a certain feeling arises, uh, we're so freaked out about it, we try to push it away. We're not going to learn a lot about ourselves or that feeling. And um, usually those efforts ultimately fail anyway. Um, and it's a way of being with our experience that's very different. So that, like that kid, you know, who was feeling angry, if he had some space, he had some choice. Do I want to hit someone in the mouth today? It's because it's Tuesday. Or, you know, do I want to use my words? Or do I want to, um, you know, talk to someone else, a third party. I mean, there, there's choice and opportunity once we're not driven. So, you know, we tell stories about ourselves all the time. Some of them are very useful. Um, you know, yeah, you can do it is a pretty useful story. And, um, and most of them are probably more on the Lucy side when we take a look and we don't want to be driven into action and decisions and, I'm going to go there. No, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to say something. No, I'm never going to speak, you know, uh, because of these forces in our minds that we don't really even understand. So going back to the little boy, when you talk about autopilot, his autopilot reaction would be to hit someone in the mouth. That would be a bad reaction. So you get mad, hit someone in the mouth. Okay, that was a failure on his part because he didn't resolve anything. He didn't make his life better. Um, Yeah, I I don't think it's so much just failure, but I think of it as consequential. Right. You know, when you hit people in the mouth, it has a consequence, you know, and your relationships can end up quite fractured and people don't necessarily understand the pain you're in. Um, you know, when you send that email, maybe you you said things in such a way that you're so much less likely to get what you want, actually, you know. Right. The, the, the automatic reaction. Yeah. If you'd only written it and waited a little bit and reread it, you know, maybe you still would have sent it or maybe you would have sent a slightly amended version. 
you know, but when we're totally overwhelmed by the feeling, which includes hating it and fearing it is another way of being overwhelmed by it, then we're just stuck. You know, we, we can't get enough space to see what choices we have. And so when we're looking at it right in the eye, we're, what are we looking at specifically then? Usually it's the first it starts with the sensation in your body. Um, it's a way of kind of learning the uh, flavor of different reactions, different emotions. Um, it's a way of being with them directly and not lost in the loop of what am I going to do about this? Um, and so here's just one example. I have a friend who describes herself as someone who basically could never say no. And so what she did in her meditation practice one day is she kind of consciously imagined the kinds of scenarios where she would be asked that kind of question where she really should say no, but she didn't. And she watched what happened in her body as she was meant, you know, in fantasy asked those questions. So she, she saw this wave, this very visceral wave, almost like panic take her over. And, um, she then used that learning when she was at work or she was in conversation somewhere and she would be asked that very kind of question and she'd feel that wave come up, which she recognized. And that became her signal to say, I'll have to get back to you later on that. So she couldn't quite bring herself to say no, but she could when she got some space from it, you know, sometimes. So, um, that's one way of using the awareness of the body, the emotions in the body, because uh, they'll they'll be really fast. They're actually faster than the the cognitive understanding. So you know when we have a chance of looking at the emotions, because we're not you know pushing it away, we're not diving into it. Uh, we get a chance to really look at it, and um, we see you know it's almost like you're watching the anger movie. Say you see, oh look how much fear there is in there. Look at how much sadness there is in there. If you're looking at tremendous desire, often there's a lot of loneliness in there. Um, you know, and so it's not certain what you'll see, but you'll see things. You know, you'll see other elements and shadings and nuance of the feeling. And you'll also see that however strong the feeling is, within itself it's constantly changing. You know, it's intense and then it fades and it comes back and it moves and it shifts and you know, this experience, which we took to be so solid and unremitting and oppressive and forever, when we really look at it, it's it's always changing and moving. So uh, in a physical example, um, I have a friend who has a very severe chronic pain condition, uh, and she looked at physical pain in just the way I'm describing, you know, being aware of, oh, it's not just one thing. It's a moment of burning. It's a moment of twisting. It's a moment of pressure. And saw it as this composite alive system. You know, it doesn't mean it didn't hurt, but it was very different to see it as an alive system rather than something static. And the way she put it was, I found the space within the pain. You know, not that the pain disappeared, but she found the space within the pain because it's moving. It's changing all the time. I love all of that. Um, so going back to this original idea of, um, of, of, of undoing the way that we, uh, that we normally handle things, we have this mind that tells us, you know, either gets angry about something or afraid of something or mad about something. 
Um, and our original reaction might just to be totally buy into it, think that that's me, that's me speaking, that's I'm identified with that voice, so I get super angry, I react in some way. Mm -hmm. But this new possibility with mindfulness is to, instead of just believing 100% what the thought says, to have two different approaches. One is to kind of feel into your body uh, like your friend who was practicing saying no and what it felt like and having these and, and, and recognizing the sensations in your body as things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other, maybe looking at the wave of emotions, which, you know, maybe it's anger, but maybe there's all these other different things. It's not just anger. If you really look at yourself, there's all kinds of stuff um, dynamically mm-hmm. happening inside, which could be some loneliness. It could be uh, fear. It's, as you say, like a nuance mm-hmm. of constantly changing feelings that we used to take to be very solid. Mm-hmm. So mindfulness allows for those two big um, possibilities. Yes, absolutely. And, and Buddha's teaching is all about freedom from suffering. So mm-hmm. um, this is what you're talking about is it's sort of a space within the pain. So when we're not just bought into our fear and triggered automatically, kind of taking you know a look at it instead of just reacting to it, that's where the space is. Mm-hmm. Even if it still hurts. That's right. Even if it still hurts is a good good addition because we shouldn't blame ourselves for that either. Um, something's just hurt, but, um, you know, some of the relief from suffering comes from not acting out all the time, you know, because actions are consequential. And, uh, you know, there's so many times when we just, we don't even know what we're feeling and we go off and we type out that email and we press send and then we go, whoops, you know, like in the olden days of email, which is such a funny thing to say, you know, if you, we're using AOL as a platform and you sent uh, an email to someone also on AOL and you thought better of it. As long as they hadn't read it yet, you could press this magic button on your computer called unsend. And it's like something would reach out from your computer to theirs and just pull it back. And it's like, it never was like I once unsent a message to, to a friend who wasn't nasty or hostile, but I just thought better of it, you know? So I pressed unsend and she wrote to me right away and she said, the weirdest thing just happened. Like I had an email from you and it disappeared before I could read it. And I wrote back and I said, Oh, that's so strange. I don't know what that is, you know, <laughs> but AOL doesn't have it anymore. I hear one of them. Gmail, I think gives you up to seven seconds or something, which is not oh, long that's enough. That's not a lot. That's not a lot. You know, time. we need a little more space than that. That's really funny. The mysterious unsend and you're admitting, do you think your friend, if they heard this would remember it was, would, so it was you. <laughs> You unsent it. I I just had that thought, but I don't think so. That's really funny. Um, So you wrote a book, uh, two books actually. One's called Real Happiness and one is called Real Happiness at Work, Mm -hmm. um, which talks about teaching this more attainable, stable happiness Mm -hmm. um, instead of like the fleeting feeling that comes and goes when we get what we want. Yeah. So um, what is this more stable form of happiness? Why, Why is it more stable? Uh-huh. Well, I call it um, a sense of inner resource. You know, the difference between, say, trying to respond to a friend who's struggling when we're exhausted and depleted. We just feel depleted, like there's nothing going on inside of us compared to when we have energy and we feel this kind of, you know, uh, upliftment of our spirits or we feel connected, you know, to something bigger than the immediate circumstance. And so, um, those are different and it's not, the difference is not on our friend, you know, 
the difference is on what are we bringing to the moment. So um, I don't see, I'm calling that inner resource happiness. And I don't see that it's selfish or self-centered or, uh, you know, which many people might say. Um, I think it's what allows us to be generous. It's what allows us to care without just falling apart ourselves. And what is it that allows us to be generous and to care? Well, you know, it's it's really the sense. I mean, actually, I come back to um, a friend of mine, Barbara Fredrickson, who's a positive psychologist. She's a researcher um, at the University of North Carolina. And she uh, often uses loving kindness meditation as the intervention for her um, her research. So uh, she talks about positive states, gratitude loving-kindness, equanimity, meaning balance or peace, generosity, you know, positive states. And she says they function in two ways. This is called like the broaden and build theory or something like that. Um, The first is that they broaden our perspective. When you're feeling gratitude, you're feeling peace, you're feeling balanced, you're feeling compassion, your perspective actually broadens. We get a sense of expansiveness of openness. It's like we can breathe. Uh, and I really believe that because I really think a lot about the opposite states, you know, when we're lost, lost, lost in anger. I don't mean just feeling angry. I feel, I mean, really lost in it, overcome by fear or desire. It's like all of them are defined by, by tunnel vision. They're characterized by tunnel vision. It's like, if you think about the last time you were really angry at yourself, uh, it's not a time you know, where our minds go, you know what? I said that really stupid thing, but I did five great things the same morning. It's like those five great things, they're gone, right? We're in lockdown around the stupid thing we said. There's just tunnel vision. Right. We become obsessed with it, totally stuck on that thought. That's right. That's right. Um, Whatever we're afraid of, it's like the only thing that exists in the world. And that's right. Exactly. And and we're sort of closed down. So probably if we were to look at our body, maybe hunched over, maybe not taking deep breaths. Yeah, we're not breathing, you know. So um, that's it's through experiencing those things very directly that I really came to see, oh, yeah, the opposite states, generosity, balance, loving kindness, they probably do the opposite. She's right. They open us. There's a sense of expansiveness. And then the second part of her theory is build, and that is about building inner resource. You know, so we feel some energy inside. We feel some composure. We feel whole. You know, when we don't feel whole, we see something pleasant and we grab it. We're so desperate not to lose it because we think it's going to make us happy finally. And if we don't feel whole and pain comes, um, it's it's not met with compassion usually. It's met with um, a feeling of futility. I should have been able to control this. This is all my fault. And um, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, we can build a sense of inner resource so that we have resilience. You know, we can face things in a different way and, and be a lot happier. Not only our own happiness, but that spills over into how we are with others. I agree. And, and something you that you said that really struck me um, about, um, like, if we don't feel whole, we want to grab onto things. Mm-hmm. And I think that can especially be a problem um, for people when they're really, really lonely yeah. and um, and then they meet someone. Yeah. There can be this uh, over-intensity around 
um, this has to work with this person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, even if maybe that's not even the right person. So, um, and that can end up being a real turnoff yeah. Yeah. Uh, to them because it's not coming from a place of wholeness. It's not as hot as it maybe would be to the other person if, if they had that, um, more stable form of happiness that you speak to. So then when, so then when you're speaking of your, of this more stable form of happiness, real happiness, or mm-hmm. that's what you're talking about, are these yeah. two positive states that Barbara Fredrickson uh, refers yeah, to yeah. Is, is the broadening um, and expansion and, and having all that like gratitude and balance yeah, and peace yeah, and generosity yeah, in your state yeah. and then building the inner resources. Oh, that's yeah, great. Yeah. Um, I thought of it more of as a story that you once told about the cherry blossoms when you were talking about oh, yeah, what yeah, you yeah. to the yeah, experience yeah, yeah, yeah. about your cherry blossom story. I happen to really love that story. Yeah. Do you want, can you tell sure. that story real quick? Um, I mean, this figures into understanding uh, I'm really intrigued these days also by how we experience pleasure, not just how we experience pain, which has always been an important investigation for me, but how do we experience pleasure? And you know, the times when something really good is happening for us and it's really delightful or wonderful, but we're so distracted, we don't even take it in. Or, and or, um, we have a fixation on what should be happening. And so even though what is happening is kind of great, it's not the right thing. So um, and some of that uh, fixation comes from outside of ourselves, what other people tell us. So that is that story. I was in Washington, D.C., and um, it was cherry blossom season, which is the time when that whole concentrated area of cherry trees down in what they call the basin bloom at once. And um, there are many trees, and and it's like a big deal. It's cherry blossom season. So uh, this year that I was there, my friend – really insisted we get there in the daytime, which I had actually not managed to do before through many years. And so we got there during the daytime and I was looking at these cherry trees and all those blossoms and I was just awed. I thought, wow, this is so beautiful. This is so incredibly beautiful. There's so many blossoms and they're so delicate. and um, it's It's a really amazing sight. And then my friend said, oh no, it's past the peak. And suddenly I thought, I'm not having a good experience. This is not good enough. You know, it's as big. How unfortunate is that? You know, and, and um, this was some years ago, but I still love that story, too, because it was perfect. You know, it was a perfect example of what we do. Like, I am having a fine time, really. So you came along <laughs> and said, it's past the peak. This isn't good enough. It's like, wait a minute. And then and you went you know, with her, too. Start believing it. That's yeah, right. You- Start believing it. That's the problem. The fixation on what should be. Um, I think that's a hysterical yeah. story. You always make me laugh with that one. Yeah. So um, going back to loving kindness, which you briefly mentioned earlier, I kind of don't want to miss asking you about it because I, I feel, I mean, I don't know. Would it be fair to say you're like kind of the Western mother of loving kindness meditation? Uh, people say that, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the, you know, key people to have brought loving kindness mm-hmm. meditation to the West. Mm-hmm. What is loving kindness meditation? Let's start with that. Uh, well, loving kindness itself is a quality of the heart. Uh, it's talked about in the Buddhist psychology a lot of um, connection, caring, friendship. Uh, I've had translators say to me, well, just say love. That's what you really mean. Don't be so cutesy about it. Just say love. But love, of course, is a very complicated term. What do we mean by love? And um, so loving kindness is, is really a state. It's like generosity of the spirit. You know, it's, it's a way of being that honors how connected our lives are. It doesn't mean you like somebody and it doesn't mean you're going to spend time with them or 
you know, whatever it is, but you know, your lives have something to do with one another. And so, um, it's a, it's its own meditation method. It's very closely aligned with mindfulness and, uh, often people will have both practices as part of what they do. And, um, but it's, it's its own method of meditation. And so, uh, it's done in its distinct way. So yes, I went to Burma and, 1985, I did three months of intensive practice, learning loving kindness, uh, and I came back and started teaching it. And my first book was called Loving Kindness, and that came out in 1995. A story that you tell to illustrate this idea of everyone being connected. Talk about being stuck on the runway. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, can you tell that story? Because sure. I like that as an illustration of what you mean by loving kindness meditation. Sure. So. Um, the story starts actually with a friend of mine, Bob Thurman, who's a professor of Buddhist studies at Columbia. And um, he uses this example a, a tremendous amount. Uh, and I use it, I think, even more. So the example is he says, imagine you're on a subway and these Martians come and they zap the subway car so that those of you who are in the subway car are going to be together forever. And he says, what do you do? Like if somebody's hungry, you feed them. Somebody's freaking out, you try to calm them down, not because you necessarily like them or you approve of them, but you're going to be together forever. So guess what? You know, we are really, you know, we don't live in a time where we can comfortably think, well, what happens over there is going to stay over there. It's not going to affect me over here. Uh, Right. This planet is the subway car. That's right. This planet is the subway car and it's happening right now. And, um, so I I love that example, and I started using it, I think, far more than Bob ever used it. And then one day I was on an airplane. I was at one of the New York City airports, uh, and the plane got stuck on the tarmac for about four and a half hours in what, looking back, I sometimes call the breakdown of civilization because it got hotter and hotter, and people were getting madder and madder and screaming and shouting, like, get me off this plane. And at one point the pilot like got on the PA system and said, no one is getting off this airplane. And I wasn't feeling that chipper myself. I thought, I'm paying rent in New York City. You know, like, if I could only get off the plane, I could try again tomorrow um, to leave. And um, and then I remembered that image, that story of Bob's that I had used so much. And I looked around the airplane, and then I thought, maybe these are my people. <laughs> you know? So, And I realized it was very interesting because um, so much of my ire was the thought, how long am I stuck with you? And then I thought, okay, forever, deal. <laughs> you know, and I got interested in people. Also, in the Buddhist psychology, interest is a uh, an antidote to anger, because with anger we're like pushing someone or something away, and with interest we're really like there, we're looking, um, we're curious, and so I get really curious about people. Like, why are you so freaked out? You know, like what's waiting for you in Tucson? And um, <laughs> you know, it was just <clears throat> it was a very different feeling. I like that interest as an antidote to anger, um, whether it's about other people or your own fear, right? Because that's really mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that. Um, so, let's can you can you tell us how loving kindness meditation works? Is mm-hmm. there can you can you talk about what it is? Uh, sure. Um, well, in mindfulness meditation, uh, usually mindfulness meditation. There are many styles of each, but usually in mindfulness meditation. You begin by just trying to concentrate a little bit and have your attention get a little more stable. So usually you use something like the feeling of the breath, the sensations 
of the in and out breath. And that becomes where you rest your attention and what you keep coming back to when you get distracted. And over some time, you also begin to open to being aware of what's predominant in your body, different sensations, different feelings of, of the body. And then you open to what's happening in your emotional landscape. And, you know, so we keep paying attention in a bigger, bigger way till we're bringing some balanced awareness to whatever is becoming predominant. And so it's a path of insight. Um, in loving kindness practice, rather than using the breath, we rest our attention on the silent repetition of certain phrases. Um, I, I often call loving kindness practice a stretch in that we realize we are in a certain rut or a certain habit of paying attention. And we realize that's limited. So we stretch. We just see what it's like to pay attention from a different angle. So for example, if you're the kind of person who at the end of the day, you sort of evaluate yourself. You look back over the day as though to say, how, I, how did I do? And let's say you're the kind of person who pretty well only remembers the mistakes you made and the things you didn't say just right and so on. Let's just say the practice of loving kindness through those phrases like, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, is almost like stretching and saying anything else happened today. Like any good within me, you know, so it takes intentionality. It's moving from what we're familiar with to another angle. It's not force. You're not trying to force yourself to feel something. But um, another example would be, you know, you think about how many people we just look through. We objectify, you know, they play some function in our life, like check out person in the supermarket or something. We have no idea of who they are, of their kind of humanity. Um, and we, in effect, look right through them. So the question becomes, what happens when we look at them rather than through them? And we do that also through the, the silent repetition of the phrases. We include them rather than exclude them. You know, you're so convinced there are no surprises, but really there are surprises in life when we pay attention. And so um, whatever, you know, you're talking to a friend, you're talking to a partner, whatever it might be, we we try to pay full attention and that's part of the loving kindness as well. So a few things um, that I have a question about it's, is it, may I be happy? May I be peaceful? Are those the only two or is there? No, 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 no. I mean, they're uh, usually, I mean, it depends on what you're doing. If you're sitting or you're walking, but if you're sitting, usually it's three or four phrases and it's offering, you know, the, the may I or the may you, as a grammatical construct sometimes confuses people. It sounds too much like pleading or begging, but it's, it's like somebody's explained to me once. It's like you give someone a birthday card and you say, may you have a happy birthday. May you have a great new year. So it's like that vibe, you know, sending a blessing. Sort yeah. Of. It's sending a blessing to yourself or to others. Exactly. It's blessing. It's gift giving. It's offering. Um, and then we see what happens. You know, we're not trying to force a, an emotion or, the resolution. This is during meditation, like on your meditation yeah. mat or, or down, whatever, if you're at the front yeah, yeah. of your bed or on yeah, the, yeah. your couch, wherever you do it. Yeah. So you start by... Um, start by offering loving kindness to yourself. May I be happy? May I be peaceful? What are the... Is there a third one? Well, you can use any phrases. You know, um, common phrases these days that many people use are, may I be safe or may I feel safe? Some people prefer that. May I be safe be happy, be healthy, live with ease. Live with ease means 
in the things of day-to-day life, like livelihood and family, may not be such a struggle. May I live with ease. May I be safe. Be happy. Be healthy. Live with ease. Or sometimes people really like a phrase that includes the word peace or, you know, it's, it's really up to you. The idea with the phrases is that they're generally enough so you can offer it to yourself and then offer it to others. You don't have to just kind of sit there and think all the time, what about you, you know, because it gets sort of tiresome. But um, th- that would be an example of the phrases. You can also do this practice walking. Uh, they're generally uh, people will have more like two phrases so they can match it to their pace um, and, you know, eyes open, silent repetition of the phrase and walking. It's a great way to walk down the streets of a city. Um, and what I like to do is I generally offer myself loving kindness as I walk. So I'm silently repeating, may I be happy, be peaceful, be happy, be peaceful. And then when someone comes strongly to my consciousness, like I hear a bird, I hear a dog, I see someone walking by, or someone from home comes strongly into my mind. For a few moments, I just offer loving kindness to them. Like, oh, be happy. And then I go back to the offering for myself. It's just one way of structuring it that gives attention like a container, but also room to play. And it is a lot of fun because one thing I've noticed is that all the same judgments might arise in my mind, but I can cap it with a little loving kindness like, that's the wrong jacket for the season. I'll be happy. You know, it's quite fun. Where subways, you know, a very rich area for this. This is crazy. It just something came up for me that I had forgotten about. But it's something that I guess I must have learned from you. And probably around the same time I was reading these books by Pema Chodron. At the uh-huh. same time I discovered your work and would go and see you at the center across the street uh-huh. um, from where I live. And um, this just totally, this memory totally hit me. Um, I was doing litigation at the time. So I was, um, you know, it had a pretty aggressive job mm-hmm. and a lot of times would be pretty freaked out. Um, because you know, like if something, things always go wrong, right. When you're in a high yeah. stress environment, especially an aggressive high stress environment. Um, and a lot of times I'd be, um, you know, walking around with like fear and stress yeah. and, something and you know and and of course nothing ever went wrong I was a great attorney as much as I hated it I was pretty awesome at it so things didn't go wrong but it always felt like oh my god my whole case is lost my client's gonna lose all their money and it's all gonna be because of me and so I'd be walking around carrying that heavy burden in my heart and feeling so terrible about it and I guess this was around the time when I was discovering your work which is pretty much what sent me there um you and and then also Pema Chodron and I'm remembering now being in the subway in New York City um, it was when you said maybe safe and live with ease. I remember just because I couldn't do anything except for feel miserable. I would see every stranger on the subway. I would just say to myself, I hope everything's going well for you today. Oh, nice. you make any mistakes today. I hope. And then I would just be like, I hope your mother is healthy. I hope you're, you know, and I would just, mm-hmm. because I would feel, felt so miserable inside all I could do to like make it go away was just pray for these other people that they weren't feeling it. And it actually really worked. And I don't know why I ever stopped because that was a beautiful practice. I mean, I guess I don't do litigation anymore. So I don't walk around in terror and fear the way that I was yeah, that I was yeah. at that time. But um, you just totally brought back the memory of me doing that as a walking meditation um, on the subway. Yeah, that's places. fabulous. Yeah. That's a beautiful meditation. That's a great memory. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it of course was, was birthed out of, of me being in a pretty bad place, but it definitely made things easier. But I also understood, I, and I, and I love the story you tell about your neutral person because, um, there are some, you know, I, another way I understood, um, loving kindness meditation being done is you start by focusing on yourself, wishing mm-hmm. that you be safe, have happy, live with ease, be peaceful. And then for the people you love and then for mm-hmm. maybe the people that you know, and then maybe for someone you don't right? isn't it? You kind of expand yeah. outward and until you yeah, get the mean, whole world. Yeah. There's, there's a sort of classical progression that is too much to do in any one session, but we kind of put pick and choose from it at different times. So um, usually the, the basic bookends we talk about for one session uh, of sitting is you start with offering loving kindness to yourself and you end with offering loving kindness to all beings everywhere. And what you do in the middle might change every day, you know. So maybe you have a friend who's graduating from something, so you want to be sure to include them. Or you have a friend who's in trouble, they're having surgery, you really want to include them. Or, um, uh, And I'll talk about the categories in a minute, you know. Maybe your neutral person is your dry cleaner, and you go to the dry cleaners today, you know. So you want to Someone be sure that you to don't feel that. one way or the other about. That's right, you know. So... The, the sequence, you know, over time is uh, yourself and then someone known as a benefactor, which is someone who's helped you, basically. You know, maybe you've never met them. They've inspired you from afar or maybe they've helped you really directly. They've mentored you or, you know, maybe you fell apart and they picked you up or, you know, someone who had faith in you maybe at some point where others maybe didn't or, um, you know, it's someone who's helped you. That's the benefactor. Uh, and then a friend, we move on to a friend. Uh, and this could be, sometimes we offer loving kindness to a friend who's doing well right now. And sometimes to a friend who's not doing so well right now. And then we move on to a neutral person. That's the person you don't strongly like or dislike. And that very often is someone who plays some role in our lives because we'll tend to see them now and then, even after we've begun the practice. And it's very interesting to see what evolves from that and then somebody we have some difficulty with uh maybe not a huge amount of difficulty right away you know we slowly make our way up to that and then all beings so um like i said you wouldn't probably at all be able to do that or want to do that all within one session you know especially if you sit for 10 or 20 minutes but um over time we experiment with those different categories um you told the story once that i still laugh about about at your meditation retreat, there was one neutral person that you had chosen to kind of focus on the whole week, someone that you, you didn't really know at all, and she was just kind of the neutral person at the retreat. Do you remember the story? Um, I have many neutral people's story. You have to tell me and more. Then you, and then you ran into her in Paris? Yeah, it was in Paris. It was Bangkok. <laughs> oh, it was in some other yeah, city. Yeah, yeah. And you tell the story like because you had been meditating on giving her all this love and then you saw her in this other city and it was as if you had seen like a celebrity superstar. Like it literally could have been like running into Tom Cruise. I know, totally. And it was really, uh, you know, and that's, it's a very important um, understanding about loving kindness practice if you choose to pursue it, which is that you may not feel any big change at all in your formal practice, whether that's a retreat or it's an hour a day or it's 10 minutes a day you know, whatever it is, that's not going to be the place where you see the benefits. You'll see them in your life, which is actually where it counts. You know, like how do you speak to yourself if you make a mistake or how do you meet that stranger or 
do you remember to thank people who just helped you out or how are you in a, in a kind of situation or adversity? And um, that's where you see the changes. So I was in Burma. This was 1985 uh, when I went to do that intensive period of, of loving kindness practice. And uh, when I was up to the neutral person, uh, I just chose another meditator there. She was from South America somewhere. I didn't know her. Um, she was there with a man. They had been traveling together, and everyone was now in intensive practice. And uh, it didn't really feel anything for her in the course of the time that I was I was using her as that recipient. And then she left Burma, and then I left sometime later. And I did. I ran into her in the streets of Bangkok. It was like my heart was like, soaring it's like that's her that's so funny so the benefits then are you know it's not like you're sitting there and you have this crazy you know um you know i don't know like spiritual awakening that you can tell it's happening right then but when you talked about you go to the grocery store and usually you'd look right through the clerk and there'll be people next to you in the aisles and you never even notice them what might start what people might start to find is that um that because they're spending so much time sending like really wishing that all people all around them be happy be peaceful be safe that you really see these people and we're like wow i really you start to feel that heart connection yeah, between them definitely. because you spent all this time like sending them these blessings or yeah in some ways yeah. kind of praying for them and in, in, in yeah, yeah very much so kind of way. yeah very um, much so so it's such a simple tool that you don't even feeling it make a difference but that actually if that you know if that change happens that is a pretty big difference in your life um, and you, you talk about that, how it seems so simplistic, you know, the tools uh, for meditation, they seem like they're not going to do anything. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you talked about, you know, when you, you went to India and they said, focus on the breath and you're like, focus on the breath. I could have stayed in Buffalo to do yeah, that. Right. Yeah. As, um, so why do you think it is that simple tools make such a big difference? Well, they, they are uh, simple, but not easy for one thing, you know, like I was very contemptuous of the meditation instruction. I thought, what, you know? Uh, what this will be easy, and it was like not that easy. Uh, but they're simple to understand, you know. I think that's because they make perfect sense, and and they meet the reality of our experience. You know, it's not like, you know, I want you to sit and be filled with brilliant white light and have it turn golden, and I want you to levitate. You know, it's like let's look at getting a little more concentrated. You know, and what are the difficult things we face? Let's try to be with them in a different way. And, you know, so it's very down to earth. It's a process and uh, it's very real. And so um, in the end, you know, I became grateful for the simplicity instead of kind of putting it down. Right. Because um, because doing them as opposed to thinking about them. Yeah. It, going through it really actually does really actually does make a difference. And and when we talk about being with difficult things in a, in a, in a different way, it's something that, you know, a lot of times I'll be working with clients who are getting over a breakup and they just Mm -hmm. refuse to accept things as they are. It's like this total shutdown around it or, or rejected by someone and just refuse to see other possibilities. And there's such a a close in this, which I understand I've been in pain too. And it's not as if I haven't been in that place, but with, um, with these tools or with knowing that I'm not my mind and that my original reaction isn't necessarily like that I'm, that I could, have a different relationship to that shutdown feeling is so helpful in terms of seeing more possibilities. So I'm so glad that, that you were able to share some of this because I think it really, this is so crucial. So like, I hope whoever's listening to this listens to it several times because Sharon is so 
brilliant and has so much amazing wisdom to offer. So for people who would want to um, learn more from you mm -hmm. and, and find more, um, what are you working now that you're most excited about sharing and like, where can listeners go to learn more and find more about you and find more of your resources? Uh, well, my uh, most recent book was Real Love, which is just coming out in paperback today, you know. Like, oh, my goodness. Is that true? It's coming out today? Yeah, today. Really? I'm so excited. In paperback, yeah. And then I actually signed another book contract, so I'm going back in the process. So I'm very excited about that. You know, it's um, Real Love is is got three sections in it. The first is about love for oneself, which is not selfish or narcissistic. It's really that sense of inner resource. And uh, the second section is on love for another, whether it's a partner or a parent or child or colleague or whatever. And then the third section is on what could love or compassion look like in a universal sense, and how can it make us strong, you know, as a motive to trying to make change in this world. And, and so the new book is, is almost like the third section and then onward. You know, uh, what does mindfulness look like? What does loving kindness look like if, if you're looking at trying to make a difference in this world? Well, I'm really excited for the new one when you write it. I'm excited for you when we meet again for you to sign my yeah, copy of Real yeah. Love. Um, it's always so much fun getting to talk to you and learn from you. Oh, wait, website. Can, website, can you yes. share your website? Yeah, sure. So the website is just SharonSalzberg.com. Yeah, so I definitely recommend anyone who can to go to the website, check it out. Um, and especially if she's in your city or anywhere, try and catch her live because um, I never leave a Sharon Salzberg talk without cracking up yeah. and thinking about it a lot um, over and over all throughout the future. So uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for sharing with everyone. Well, thank you. I'm so grateful. I look forward to seeing you soon. Great. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Now I want to hear from you. Look, we covered a lot of things in this episode, but I want to know what of the many things was the most impactful for you. And I want to know not just why you found it important, but also what action can you take right now to put it into practice in your life? Email me at Jordana at womenwantingwomen.com and let me know. I read all of my emails personally, and I want to hear from you. And don't forget to head over to womenwantingwomen.com to sign up for my email list to become a Jordana Michelle Insider. When you do, you'll get instant access to an email training series I created to help you get on your game to attract your soulmate. Plus, you'll get exclusive content and special giveaways and some personal updates from me that I don't share anywhere else. And if you're interested in finding your soulmate so you could be best friends who learn together and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and have amazing sex together, then there are tons of free resources for you on womenwantingwomen.com, including a guide to quickly and easily eliminate rejection from your life, a class on the number one thing you can do to end your loneliness if you're single, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a quick guide to the five biggest mistakes most women make when coming out, and a free matchmaking survey that any queer-identified female can fill out so that I can keep you in mind while I'm meeting and working with the amazing women I connect with constantly with the work that I do in our community. I'm always trying to set women up, and I might know the perfect match for you. So go find my survey and tell me about yourself so I can help. All of this is free on my website at womenwantingwomen.com. Go check it out for yourself and share it with any other queer women that you think could benefit from what I'm offering there. 
Until next time, don't forget that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women. Women.